Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. Welcome, everybody. I have here Michael Ehrlich, Professor of Finance at NJIT, the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Professor Ehrlich is also at the Lear Research Institute's Bubble Center. And we can talk about that in a little bit, but this caught my attention because, of course, financial bubbles are one thing that we always like to look for, not just as contrarians, but everybody to kind of keep an eye on what might pop and what potentially could lead to the next drawdown in financial markets. And Professor Ehrlich, you have here a couple of them that you've identified, which we'll talk about in short order. One is sovereign debt and the other are is financial innovation. So maybe let's start with sovereign debt first. Talk to me about that, where the bubbles are, what's caused it, and where you see things going. Sure. So um so at, at the bubble center, you know, I should warn you that we're better at identifying where, where bubbles are than knowing when they're going to pop. That is always the hardest question, and we don't really right. have good answers for that. But having said that, it's pretty easy to identify some of these bubbles. So we're looking at a long-term debt market where the U.S. Federal Reserve has been artificially and, and aggressively lowering rates for some time now. Um, that is not going to last forever, and rates are going to go up. Now, in the U.S. market, that's somewhat priced, and you know, I don't think that's going to be catastrophic. The problem is for lots of investors who are who are uh, on fixed incomes, they're wondering whatever happened to my 14% of 2011 Treasury bonds, where I got this good coupon every 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 uh, six months. You know, they're reaching for yield, and as they reach for yield, they reach for more and more risky securities, and so oftentimes those are sovereign issues or uh, you know, long-term bond issues from other uh, governmental entities, whether it be in uh, Latin America, Africa, other parts of the world. Um, and they're reaching for that yield and they basically drive that yield down. Now, of course, we haven't seen any bad outcomes really in the sovereign market since about the 80s. And so there's been kind of a long time when it's been reasonably good and people forget kind of how bad it was then. And so, so right now they've kind of compressed credit spreads to a point where the credit spreads are not, I don't believe, compensating them for the risk they're taking. 
And so eventually there's going to be a bad outcome in one or more of these places. That's going to lead uh, to uh, defaults and that's going to lead people to recognize that uh, you know, to to then to then run for the hills, and the problem mm-hmm. is when they run for the hills, as you know, liquidity dries up on the downside a lot faster mm-hmm. than, than 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 you people expect, and so when they want to sell, they're going to be to whom, and so the mutual funds that have been loading up on some of these instruments in order to juice their yields, make them attractive to retail investors, are going to find they have no place to go with these assets. It's going to be it's going to be off the cliff. And that's going to be that's going to be the popping of, of that bubble, mm-hmm. um, you know. And, and again, it's not just sovereigns. It could be other kind of you know high yield, uh, you know, debt. So private equity debt is probably also quite vulnerable in the same way. So all of this kind of long term debt, though, I think is vulnerable. Now going the other way, by the way, you know, this is probably a great time to lock in a thirty year mor- fixed rate mm-hmm. mortgage. I mean, you could lock in a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at 3% or below 3% uh, in some cases, um, you know, and, um, you know, it's very likely that rates are going to go up over those 30 years and you're going to feel smart for having, you know, locked in your debt at such a, such a low level. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, so I think there's opportunities here uh, for people to be proactive, uh, both by avoiding some of these markets and partly even by taking advantage of these things, uh, of some of these rates themselves. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah, interesting points. Good points. Although I, I would argue on the rates issue that if you're looking to buy new property, good luck because there is not much supply there and you're probably going to have to overpay. And I say that as somebody who was actually looking to buy property very recently myself and decided not to after I was encountered with that reality. But going back real quick um, to the sovereign debt crisis, I, I, I do think that there it's been a little bit more recently than the 80s. Followers of this podcast, of course, know about long-term capital management, the 98 uh, Russia crisis that upended that and and caused a Fed-led bailout of the financial system at the time. So it's, but to your point, it is, that's long ago enough that people, especially younger investors, certainly don't remember it. Well, and people have short memories. I mean, I, I hate to say that, but you know, they really no, you're have, absolutely right. they have yeah. short memories. And so you're, you're absolutely right. But, uh, but uh, in recent memory, they have not seen this kind of crisis. Yeah, that's, so your broader point absolutely stands. And in recent memory, nobody's seen anything like this. Now, where have, have you looked at this um, a little, in any more detail? And have you looked at seen any pockets where there could be, that could be kind of the canary in the coal mine for uh, a potential sovereign debt crisis? Yeah, so that's interesting. So um, we've looked at, uh, again, some of these uh, fixed income mutual funds. And mm-hmm. I think that that is a very much a source of vulnerability because they've been the ones receiving the investments from the retail investors. They've been trying to return, produce a return for those retail investors. They compete with each other based on their stated yield. So therefore, they're induced to reach for yield and return in, in order to kind of maintain those inflows. Um, when there's a, but, and, and the retail investors kind of trust the mutual fund to sort of be working on their behalf, which they do. But again, I think that uh, when we see, when we see redemptions, when we see a surprise in the market, we start, we start to see some redemptions from retail investors that forces the mutual funds to sell again, a mutual fund that might've taken down 20% of a sovereign debt issue from somebody with, you know, a, a juicy, what seemed like a juicy yield relative to sort of, you know, treasuries, you know, the problem is when they're then trying to sell that 20%, who are they going to sell it to? Yeah. And, it's, can, and it, can, has, it really has the potential to go down hard and fast as liquidity mm-hmm. dries up. And, and there's just not as much liquidity in the dealer market as there once was. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think there could be, 
as if, if, if there's a real run for the exits, there's going to be few that actually make it out the door unscarred. Mm, yeah. And nothing happens in a vacuum and these things tend to spread because once you can't generate liquidity from those investments, you have to sell others and the whole thing feeds on itself. As far as parts of the world that you think might might kind of lead that are may potentially over leverage, is there anything you're watching there in particular? Um, you know, you could pick almost any place. I mean, mm. whether that be, you know, Southern Europe, uh, Africa, Latin America, some Asia, uh, you know, it, all the entire world has really kind of, you know, taken advantage of these very low rates and levered up to a very significant degree. The other place by away from sovereign debt would be private equity. Private okay. equity has grown tremendously and they they live or, or die by their ability to issue large amounts of low cost debt. And that is definitely another place where people have reached for yield and the mutual funds have participated. And again, if they, you know, could 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 uh, could have a dramatic jump upward in terms of in terms of credit spreads. Yeah, that's a that's a big one too for sure. Um, and a lot of them are ba- borrow from obviously from banks and and they borrow from the Fed. So if you have higher rates, that could be something that that is a potential cause for concern, right? Absolutely. Well, we saw we saw during the pandemic that again the the like the big retail firms that have been bought by private equity um, had no reserves had no kind of, you know, emergency funds to kind of tide them over to allow them to adapt to this online environment. And those that didn't went out. Um, and so we've seen, you know, again, a whole lot of people who, you know, private equity buys in, in, in this way that kind of uh, levers up, but assumes they're going to be able to keep generating cash flow. If there's a, a bump and pandemic was a big bump, um, you know, basically right away, there was, there was, there was a, a, a lot of failures in the private equity space, that retail space. And, and mm. you could see that in other markets, uh, again, with disruptions as well. Mm-hmm. Good points. Good points. All right. Speaking of private equity and financial engineering, let's talk now about the second area of concern that you guys have identified, which is, yeah, financial engineering. And where how does that uh, translate itself right now? So, so let's take a step back and talk about bubbles in general. Yeah. Right. Bubbles fundamentally are part of the financial process. It's if you want to make financial progress, part of that package is their bubbles are going to exist because bubbles generally are formed when there's kind of a kernel of a good idea. Some smart people pile into it. They, they do quite well. Some other people see the smart people piling into it. They kind of follow along. Uh, but they don't necessarily fully understand what they're getting involved in. There's kind of a euphoria phase as, as kind of the, the, the greater fool buys, buys it because they don't, know, they don't know why it's going up, but they see it going up. Um, and then at some point, somebody recognizes the emperor has no clothes. The smart guys get out. And then something, something happens which disturbs the status quo or the equilibrium of the less sophisticated investors with these, with these innovations in the marketplace. And the market then precipitously drops because once they decide to sell, the smart guy, so I, I, I was out of that at, that at that price and nobody else steps in. And so there's really a, really a crash. And, and by the way, this particular pattern goes way, way back. This goes back to the, to the Dutch tulip crisis. You know, I mean, you know, I mean this, 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 is, this is the pattern for bubbles, right? So what we're observing here is a series of financial innovations now that I would name two. One of them is SPACs where people are piling in, they're very enthusiastic about this, a quick way to market, it's a quick way to liquidity for these, you know, very promising startups, by the way. I'm not saying that they're not, but, but, the, but again, the issue is not whether they're promising startups, the question is what's the price that they're trading at? 
Um, and then, of course, cryptocurrency is the other one, which people are, again, piling in without really knowing what they're piling into. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, again, all it would take is something to disrupt people's equilibrium. Recent examples have been, again, during the, uh, uh, you know, during 2007-8, there was the financial innovations of uh, subprime mortgages, credit default swaps, credit, uh, collateralized debt obligations, um, you know, uh, structured investment vehicles, uh, you know, so, so you know, uh, and even before that, there was the, there was the investments in um, uh, auction rate preferred stocks. Again, these innovations are not fundamentally bad. The problem occurs when people get involved who don't really understand what the innovations are. They don't have experience of the downside. There's not a deep market with liquidity. And so when they get shaken, they want to sell, they want to head for the exit, but there's no liquidity. And basically suddenly, and they can really gap down in a very significant way. Um, and that's what I'm expecting where we've already certainly seen a little bit of in the cryptocurrency market. Mm-hmm. Um, and my guess is we'll see more, especially as more unsophisticated investors start to get involved. Mm. Um, and then and then, uh, and then, then SPACs, we haven't seen it yet, but holy a matter of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do think SPACs have perhaps sold off a bit. One could argue the bloom is off the rose, but certainly haven't imploded in the way that we saw anything close to the subprime mortgages or, or anything like that. Um, and with cryptos, you know, there's the argument against it is that there's no real fundamental underlying asset, right? It's just an algorithm. So that kind of meets your definition head on pretty much, right? Pretty much. So there's even bigger problems with crypto. Uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. government, governments around the world hate anonymous money. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't even like their own anonymous money. In the U.S., the biggest bill is a $100 bill, which is actually not a big bill these days. Yeah. And it's because they don't like anonymous money. They don't want it to make it easy to do anonymous transactions. They'd like to be able to follow and tax uh, and regulate the transactions. And so the government has had a real interest in opposing anonymous transactions. We're seeing it in, well, and of course, some governments are showing a strong backlash like China, you know, that are making it quite difficult. They're really, really, really opposed to cryptocurrency because they, they, they lose their control. So in addition to the pure technological problems, there's actually headwinds from the government that I, the governments uh, around the world that I think are going to uh, continue to put pressure on crypto. For sure. Yeah. All right, Professor Ehrlich, I, I want to take a short break and come back and ask you some more about your background, how you got into bubble research and discuss some other things. But let's first take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And if you're a premium subscriber, do not touch the dial. You will not get the break and we'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded, Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. Welcome back, everybody, here with Professor Ehrlich from NJIT, the Lear Research Institute's Bubble Center. 
Professor Ehrlich, this is the section of this show where we ask our guests more about themselves and how they came to this stage of their careers. So what interests you in financial bubbles and how did you come about to this stage? So I love financial markets. Uh, I've loved financial markets all my life. I, I think they're fascinating. Um, and in general, markets work extremely well. We take things for granted. I mean, you know, when you want to buy a pair of shoes, you know where to go. You go to a shoe store, they have the right shoes, they have a right and a left matching in the color, approximately the price you want, and there they are, uh, just waiting for you. It's amazing, actually. And, you know, hundreds of people literally coordinated to, to do that. And you, it's seamless and you just take it for granted. So what I, but what I focus on actually is market failures. So mm-hmm. my specialty is actually financial markets uh, failures. And so I look at where they, where they don't work. And so one of the places they don't work is in this area of financial bubbles. And so that's been sort of a, a focus in financial innovations that where uh, we look, we look at, I look at financial regulations and kind of how regulations get co-opted by the regulatees uh, you know, the regulators get copied by, co-opted by the regulatees. And so that they, they, you know, so there's lots of places where this, where this happens. One of the markets that I focus a lot on actually is in the early stage startup space. And so I, I call that a market failure because it turns out that the matching up of money and good ideas is a really hard problem. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really hard, wicked hard problem. And um, even the people that are best at it, like venture capital firms, fail at least 50% of the time. Hmm. Um, and now, now in return for that, there's, there's good rewards for people that can do it and put together a portfolio that makes sense. And we've certainly seen, seen that as well. And so that's a space that I participate in quite, quite actively as well. So, hmm. so, so there's, um, again, I've given you a range of things, but basically, so my research mostly focuses on kind of this bubbles or traditional failures as you think about them. Uh, but then also looking at this uh, new early stage investing. How do you match up, in particular, the earliest arm's length money with the earliest ideas? Mm-hmm. Um, and so angel investors and things like that. I, I've done some some research on looking at kind of how do we how do we how do we match them up? How do we how do we get them together? My my most famous publication actually is uh, how entrepreneurs seduce business angels. Really, it's kind of a, a process where they try to find a meeting of the mind and try to find uh, a way to communicate and develop trust when there's no track record, right? I mean, again, there's yeah. no, there's no track record to back. There's no, you know, you're, 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 you're selling your story as an entrepreneur. Um, and how do you make a, how do you put together a compelling story for investors? Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. This is a, a space that, as you mentioned, is, is controlled historically by venture capital uh, are there other ways that that you think that this might be ripe for disruption, or ways that it, you could see this change in the future? Sure. So there's so there's been a big move towards uh, angel investing, mm-hmm. and uh, angel investing has proliferated. It's very it, it's widely uh, out there. There's the Angel Capital Association people that want to get engaged. There's uh, there's also uh, there's also um, crowdfunding. So you can actually do this even if you're not a qualified investor. Although these, these days to be a qualified investor is not so crazy. You don't need to You have as much. Uh, the standards haven't changed for many, many years. And so therefore being a qualified investor, more, more and more people qualify. Every, every dentist in America is probably a qualified investor. You know, so, so there's really a lot of people out there and, and they, can be, they can participate as angel investors. And, and what I would say to anybody that was thinking about getting started is join a group. Uh, if you look at, uh, again, Angel Capital Association or Gus.com, 
Uh, you can find groups that you can that within your region that you could join. Uh, you can put in relatively modest amounts of money pooled with some other people. And again, you want to think about this as a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Uh, you want to think about this as a diversified portfolio and a marathon, not a sprint. But again, I think there's rewards for people that are willing to give up the liquidity. You're absolutely, absolutely forfeiting liquidity. There's no question that you are. But if you have a kind of enough resource that you can think of as a long-term buy and hold portfolio, there's mm. definitely uh, good, re- good returns that you can reasonably expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've actually seen studies that show that early stage VC investing is the most, get, generates the most returns when you compare it to you know, anything, including private equity and, and things like that. So it's also the riskiest. So, I mean, so, you know, so there's, there's, there is that always risk reward trade off. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. True, true, true. Yeah. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. Uh, speaking of you know early stage and technology, are there any particular technologies or things that you're particularly excited about right now? So, uh, so I'm I'm a kind of a wide ranging early stage investor, but uh, but uh, but I like the fintech area. I think mm-hmm. that you know finance is an area where there's always room for improvement. Um, you can look as a leading indicator how well some of the Chinese companies, uh, Ant in particular, has done in terms of helping that country advance through financial innovations. Of course, they're now facing some headwinds from financial regulation, um, but I think there's really a lot of upside opportunities. So you can look at other parts of the world and say financial innovations in um, other parts of the world, including the United States, by the way, um, are, are have, have significant potential. Other areas that are really promising, of course, is, is um, but you need to really be prepared to take a lot of risk. Uh, but, uh, but certainly in terms of there's been a huge advances in drug development and drug mm-hmm. discovery and treatments. Um, and whether that and whether that be on the on the medical side, uh, but then there's also an uh, area which I love, which is health tech, which mm. is less about uh, treatment, more about sort of management uh, of of healthcare and whether you can kind of manage the electronic health records and make it easy for doctors and easy for patients. Um, yeah, I don't know if you're participating in these things, but I, I, you know, of course, with electronic health records, you book your appointments online. You don't need to work with the receptionist anymore. That's kind of like that's kind of like the modern version of like ATMs. I mean, I don't mm. go into bank anymore. I just work from the, either the app or the ATM, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and uh, really don't need to talk to teller more than once a year for something or other, you know, so, so financial innovations, I think, you know, so, so, so those kinds of, you know, fintech, health tech, um, you know, are, are top spaces mm-hmm. uh, right now. Um, yeah, that, that, anyhow, but, but, but you can find opportunities in a million places. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, look at how well Tesla has done with battery tech. Yeah, and battery tech is actually very hot right now too. Again, people are discovering new things in the labs, and of course, that's one of the great things because I'm at NJIT, which is a you know polytechnic university, New Jersey Institute of Technology. I'm in the School of Management. I get to work with my colleagues all over the university on all their cool ideas, and so I get grants from the National Science Foundation through their uh, ICOR program, Innovation Core program, and then I'm able to give out mini grants to my faculty student team colleagues and help them to explore the commercialization of whether it be solar tech or microfluidics or architecture or, you know, uh, you know, or, 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 or chemistry, you know, environmental, environmental cleanup technology, you know, teams mm-hmm. are using 
uh, you know, micro ozone bubbles to clean the water these days. And, you know, there's just, just a million things. Technology used for concrete. Uh, you know, again, there's a million people. Uh, again, it's exciting to work for my colleagues where we get to work. I get to help them, uh, support them to start exploring the commercialization and, and start thinking about not just writing papers, but actually how do you make it, how do you bring this into the world? Yeah, re really interesting. Yeah, you mentioned a bunch of things there. Uh, that people can look up and, and research some more if they're interested. But one thing you didn't mention was driverless cars. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Uh, so I'm a big fan of driverless cars. I'm, I'm getting to be of an age where at some point that's going to be very convenient, right? But um, but so so driverless cars, I think, are great. And I think they're going to be out there eventually. But it's going to take longer than people expect. It always does. Um, because particularly with driverless cars, right now, I'm highly confident that the driverless cars are better than human drivers on average. Already. I mean, okay. I mean, not to be rude, human drivers are kind of terrible if you've been yeah, out of the road. Fair point. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that's kind of a low bar to set. The problem is that when a driverless car makes a mistake, it's a headline. And so even if one in a million makes a mistake, whereas one in a hundred thousand human drivers make a mistake, a human driver makes a mistake, people say, I made a mistake and it's an accident and boom, boom, we, you know, we, we ignore it. If it's one in a million for the driverless cars, it may be actually that there right now, where they're already maybe 10 times better than humans. It's a headline and it's a problem. And so it's, so the adoption is going to take a little longer for people to kind of get past that. I saw a proposal for driverless cars and, you know, people were in favor of them as long as it's not in my neighborhood. They don't want it like down their street because their children might be playing and they don't want, you know, they don't want a driverless car down their street. And so, you know, so even smart, sophisticated people who are in favor of driverless cars, there's kind of this, this kind of NIMBY thing. Mm. Um, and um, it's going to take some time to get past that. That's, those are not technical issues. Those are sociological issues. But as you know, sociological issues are usually tougher than technical ones in any case. Yeah, they are. Although a lot of them are, are at some point you figure they would break. I mean, weren't elevators originally operated by hand and probably a hundred years ago, the concept of going in there and pushing a button would have seemed crazy, but. No, no. I, and I agree with that entirely. No, no. I think driverless cars are in our future for sure, but it's more like, again, I'm, it's more like five years than one or two years, mm -hmm. uh, just mm -hmm. because I think people need to get their heads around adoption of this new technology. Now, there's going to be clever ways that people do it. I actually talked to some people who are thinking about creating a driverless fleet specifically for elderly and disabled people in the community, specifically for elderly and disabled. And, and it would travel kind of at a slow speed. It would have like a light and whatever, you know, kind of like the, like the uh, new driver uh, on board, you know, so everybody would sort of know to be a little bit careful of it. But on the other hand, um, those same people who in the, in, the, in the suburbs who don't necessarily want to have the driver driving down their street, well, if they're bringing grandma or helping their disabled child get to or from school, you know, suddenly some of these other sociological barriers can be broken down. And so there's going to be ways that, you know, people get to adopting some of these technologies. Um, it, so it, it's definitely in our future. It's just that um, uh, Elon is probably more optimistic about getting it out there quickly than I am. Yeah, not at all for self-serving purposes, of course, on his part. Yeah. Uh, do you have any thoughts about urban development? We've seen a lot now with, uh, you know, you're close to New York City, as am I. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have left. They said to have come back. But there's a lot of talk about, you know, the, the office list future, office list present we've certainly had over the past year and a couple of months. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that and how that, that might develop? So if, you, so, so if you're looking at New York City, 
the commercial real estate market for like offices is in big trouble. Yeah. Um, I doubt we ever go back to everybody goes into the office five days a week from nine to five. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to go in off hours. We're going to go in two or three days a week, maybe only one day a week, um, you know, depending upon your job. And so a lot of people are going to be going in less. I mean, some people can't, if you're, if you're selling lottery tickets to the bodega, you go in every single day. So, you know, again, it's not everybody, but, um, but a lot of people are going to be going in a lot less. That's going to create less demand for that, that commercial space. There's going to create vacancies. They're going to create oversupply, but that oversupply is going to get sucked up because we've already seen in in the lower part of Manhattan there used to be tons of Wall Street office buildings, which are almost all residential these days, mm-hmm. and so so there are going to be conversions of a lot of that space into residential. It's going to be beautiful new residential space. Uh, it's going to create opportunities for people to live in the city. People like to live together. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at where people have, you look at sort of maps of the world or any any region, people could spread out to all that open space, but they don't, they all kind of gather together. So I think it's a human impulse that we want to live near one another. And if we don't have to be on the farm farming, we'd rather live near our neighbors mm-hmm. and, and socialize and take advantage of these social benefits together. And so we've seen this big global trend to urbanization. We see it continuing in the United States uh, so I don't see that. I don't see that again, that strong underlying sociological effect. Um, people are going to move back to the cities. Um, and again, from environmental, from a, from a, from a environmental perspective, the cities are actually much more efficient, right? I mean, you can, you can heat one building and you kind of, it heats everybody. And, you know, there's just, a, just the economies of scale and sort of the environmental impacts of people who live in apartment buildings as opposed to standalone homes are much lower. And so as we kind of tax carbon, you know, whatever, there's going to be lots of reasons to think that the cities are going to do fine, um, but there's going to be some transitions. Now, the sector that's doing really well is actually the industrial sector around cities, because what they've discovered is they, they don't want to have all their manufacturing super far away. Some of it, they actually want to have somewhat a little closer. And so, um, and so, you know, power generation, all sorts of things, people are trying to sort of, you know, build a little closer so we don't have to have huge transmission lines. Uh, and, and they're they're hard and they're expensive and they're also environmental problems, um, and so you know so we're going to be seeing you know rooftop solar just all those kinds of things are going to be happening and 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 again the cities are going to be really popular. Now for cities like New York, which have quite developed transit systems, uh, the obvious move and you're sort of seeing people doing it already is where there are spurred leaving out of the city, good transit lines leaving out of the city, people are building popping up, very nice. Um, residential facilities that are slightly lower cost, whether they're, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, it, here in the New York area, there's an organization called Irby that has kind of a few of them. Um, and, you know, really we should be thinking about rezoning and saying wherever there's, wherever there's kind of a transit hub within a thousand feet, whatever I'm just arbitrarily saying, they should say the zoning is you can, you can build, uh, you know, uh, five or 10 or 15 story uh, apartment building. And if you did that, that would actually bring down the cost of having re- raise the supply would actually, you know, create, create new opportunities. But in the short run, the opportunities I think are going to be converting this hmm. excess commercial space into residential. Hmm. Very interesting points. All right, Michael Ehrlich, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Pod- Investor Podcast today. Maybe in closing, you can tell our listeners where they can find out more about you. And I'll put this information in the show notes as well. Sure. So if you go to uh, NJIT Martin Tuckman School of Management, uh, you can find information about my people page and you can find information about me, my colleagues. I encourage you to do that. 
Um, and also, and also, uh, you know, you can come come to the Lair Research Institute page where we talk about, which is an institute for business technology and society, where we look at some of these social issues. We're having a conference coming up on fintech. We had one on health tech, and uh, we're we're going to be looking at kind of you know regulations and disruptions uh, within these markets. We bring in uh, people, not just academics, but also people from the commercial space, uh, you know, uh, in business community as well as you know startups. Uh, government, government entities and non-government entities as well. So we're really looking to bring together a mix of people to have make to to get this research that we're great research. My colleagues are doing it at places like NHIT out into the world, and so people can take benefit from it. Very cool. Yeah, the URL is management.njit.edu. NJIT stands for New Jersey Institute of Technology, of course, and your. Uh, URL is people.njit.edu slash faculty slash Ehrlich. I'll put that in the show notes, like I said. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.